The views expressed on this program are not necessarily the views of this station. Content is for educational purposes only. Consult a financial advisor or conduct your own due diligence of investing. Calls are pre-screened and the show was pre-recorded earlier this week. Rick is with Edelman Financial Engines, a part of Financial Engines Advisors, LLC, and the investment advisor that furnishes this program. Barron's ranks financial advisory firms based on assets managed, team size, experience, and regulatory record. Firms self-nominate. Investment returns and experience are not considered. Advisors in the Hall of Fame have been in the top 100 for 10 plus years. Future performance is not guaranteed. This is the Rick Edelman Show. Barron's ranks Edelman Financial Engines the number one independent investment advisor in the country. And Rick is in the Barron's Financial Advisor Hall of Fame. Now, here's Rick Edelman. And a very happy weekend to you. Welcome to the Rick Edelman Show. We had some excitement this past week, didn't we? It's the World Series, of course, that I'm talking about. And no, I'm not talking about the fact that the Atlanta Braves won the World Series. I'm talking about the fact that you saw a commercial featuring Matt Damon promoting a company called Crypto.com. Well, you say we try that one again, huh? (laughs) Crypto.com? You're wondering what that is. Well, it's a crypto exchange. They enable you to buy and sell Bitcoin and other digital assets. Who are they? Why are they advertising in the World Series? And how did they get Matt Damon to be the spokesman for their ad? Well, this is just yet another illustration of the mainstreaming of blockchain and digital assets. In fact, that was the cover of Barron's last week. Bitcoin is now mainstream, said Barron's. And it's not just Crypto.com that had Matt Damon as its spokesman for its commercial. What you really saw plastered throughout the entire World Series were the umpires wearing a lapel that said FTX. Who's FTX? Well, they're the world's largest digital asset exchange. Created by a fellow by the name of Sam Bankman-Fried. Sam, by the way, 29 years old, is the world's youngest multi-billionaire. Forbes pegs his net worth at $22 billion simply from creating a company that helps people buy and sell digital assets like Bitcoin. FTX acquired the sponsorship rights with Major League Baseball to plaster their logo on the shoulders and chest pockets of all the umpires throughout the World Series. That's not all FTX did. They also hired NFL star Tom Brady and two-time NBA MVP Stephen Curry as their brand ambassadors. And they're not alone. CoinCloud hired Spike Lee to direct and star in a TV commercial. CoinFlip hired Neil Patrick Harris. Alec Baldwin's doing ads for eToro. And Voyager Digital signed Rob Gronkowski, the four-time Super Bowl champ, as its brand ambassador. Bitcoin has gone mainstream. Folks who don't know anything about digital assets have never even heard of any of this, know the word Bitcoin, but don't quite understand it. Well, it's now directly in everyone's face with major Hollywood and athletic stars joining forces with the crypto community as their spokespeople to promote these products and services. So yeah, it's all gone mainstream. And that means more than ever, 
You should be able to expect your financial advisor to give you guidance, and that is the approach I recommend that you take. Don't just respond to an ad. Focus as well on your best interests, fitting it into your financial plan, deciding how much to invest, if any, what you should be investing in, how you should be acquiring it and managing it and reporting it on your taxes, and so on. Because whenever you see something becoming dominant, whenever you start to see something entering the mainstream, it not only means tens of millions of investors are engaging. Right now, according to the data, 200 million people around the world own Bitcoin, including 17% of Americans. Well, it also creates the opportunity for scams and frauds. In fact, the SEC just last week charged GTV Media Group and the Soraka Media Group, along with the Voice of Guo Media Group, with running an unregistered illegal offering of a digital asset security. They were called G-Coins and G-Dollars, and these outfits collectively agreed to pay a fine of $39 million dollars. The companies were promoting the coins on YouTube and Twitter. They raised almost half a billion dollars from more than 5,000 investors. In other words, these folks were investing about $100,000 each into something that turned out to be nothing more than a scam. I'm not referring to Bitcoin itself. I'm not referring to these big major companies that are operating legitimately. I'm simply saying that whenever you have major amounts of investments, tens of millions of investors, and very reputable companies involved, it simply creates an opportunity for scam artists to play as well. So you need to make sure you're working through it very carefully. Oh, speaking of scams, let me share with you some additional scam stories. Larry Holly, a pastor at the Abundant Life Ministries in Michigan, raised over $9 million from 140 investors, a pastor, and it turned out to be nothing but a Ponzi scheme. He was just sentenced to more than eight years in prison. His associate, Patricia Gray, was sentenced to 42 months in prison. The Department of Justice says they began soliciting retirees and laid off auto workers way back in 2014. They've been doing it ever since. They were hosting financial seminars at churches. Pitches included numerous references to scripture, and they convinced those investors to roll over their IRAs and 401ks. Even in church, you have to remain skeptical when somebody suggests an investment strategy to you, not merely in church, but even when it's the pastor themselves who's making the pitch. And then there's BNZ, a Newport Beach outfit run by a fellow by the name of Brett Barber, along with Louis Zimmerly. The SEC says they fraudulently raised $13.5 million from 100 investors, told them that they were going to be investing in real estate. And guess what the annual return was that they promised their investors? 10% per year. That's it just 10%. You see, normally when you hear about these scams, it's literally get-rich-quick stuff. People promising to double your money in 90 days and silliness like that. That's not what these guys are doing. Just 10%. Hey, in a world where you're earning zero point nothing in a bank account, 10% 
sounds pretty good, doesn't it? And when it's not a hugely outrageous claim, well, you're more likely to fall for it on the attitude that, oh, if it were a scam, they'd be promising a 100% return. Well, since they're only offering 10%, it must be legit, right? You always have to have your guard up. Oh, and it's incredibly easy for you to find out if the person you're dealing with has a sketchy reputation or record. Just go to sec.gov or finra.org. They both have lists of financial advisors and stockbrokers that you can just type in their names or type in the names of their firms and up will pop instantly their regulatory record. And Brett Barber was barred from the securities industry by FINRA. You would have found that if you had bothered to type in his name into Google. He, of course, didn't tell his investors that that was the case. The guy was already kicked out of the industry, and he was still promoting fraudulent activities. And then there is Beethoven. We all love Ludwig von Beethoven. He died in 1827. What you just heard was his ninth symphony, the most famous symphony ever written. Beethoven died before he was able to finish his 10th symphony. And ever since, music historians, musicologists, composers have all been trying to figure out what would the 10th symphony have sounded like had Beethoven lived long enough to write it. And so... It now exists. AI has now produced Beethoven's 10th symphony. They created it using artificial intelligence and the computer having reviewed Beethoven's earlier works, looking at Beethoven's notes that he made for the production of the 10th symphony, determined what it was Beethoven would have written. And here it is. Okay, that's really fascinating, isn't it? But there's a hidden message in this story that is really important for you to understand. And I'm going to tell you what that is when we return here on The Rick Edelman Show. So stay with us for more. 888-PLAN-RICK, online at ricedelman.com. And we'll be back with Beethoven. Named by Talkers Magazine as one of the 100 most important radio talk show hosts in the country, this is The Rick Edelman Show. Welcome back to The Rick Edelman Show. The music you just heard was Beethoven's 10th Symphony. Problem, of course, is that Beethoven never actually wrote his 10th symphony. He died before ever doing that. He only had scribbled some basic notes and had only a few parts of the music written. So that music you just heard was created by a computer using artificial intelligence. 
Musicologists got together with music historians and composers and wrote the code for the artificial intelligence software and produced that music, which now everybody is claiming is exactly or at least very similar to what Beethoven himself would have produced. That's really cool, isn't it? It's an illustration of the incredible opportunities and advantages and innovations of exponential technologies that computers now can actually simulate and predict what a musician would himself or herself produce. Well, that's pretty cool and interesting, at least intellectually, but it does raise the issue of potential scams. Cyber criminals in the United Arab Emirates, the UAE, used similar AI technology to steal $35 million from a bank. How did they steal the money from the bank? They simply transferred it to bank accounts all over the world. How were they able to do it? They used artificial intelligence. You see, at one of the big banks in the UAE, there was a really big company with a really big bank account. $35 million was in this bank account. I mean, think about it. You have most of your cash reserves sitting in bank accounts. And for you, it might be a few hundred dollars, a few thousand dollars. If you're wealthy, maybe a few hundred thousand dollars. But think about the big companies in this country. They're multi-billion dollar organizations. They have huge amounts of money. Well, where do they put it? Well, the same place you do, in the bank. It's not at all uncommon for big companies to have tens of millions of dollars of cash sitting in bank accounts. Well, that's what this big company did, $35 million sitting in the bank. So what did the criminals do? They used software, and they used the software to create the voice of a corporate executive, an executive who had authority to execute transactions regarding that bank account in that bank. So using the software, they simply made a phone call to the bank manager who handles the account, the bank manager who knows the corporate executive very well. Using the voice recorded by the computer, talking to the bank manager on the phone, well, the bank manager said, I know this voice. I know this individual. And so when the voice said, transfer the money to these various other bank accounts at other banks, the bank manager said, sure, it's a routine situation, and went ahead and did it. They stole $35 million relying on emails and the voice of the artificial intelligence software computer to execute the transactions. Nobody had to walk into a bank branch holding a gun. You've got to be suspicious more than ever before. Even when you think you're talking to someone you know, how now can you be truly sure that the person you think you're talking to is really the person that you are talking to? Yeah, the world of scams is getting ever more clever, and we have to be ever more diligent. And sometimes we encounter scams that, you know, they're not really technically scams. I mean, nobody's trying to steal from you, and nobody will personally profit if you act on what they're telling you. But nevertheless, you're being financially harmed. 
And sometimes this is coming from legitimate sources, such as in the major media. Every single year, there's a specific story that appears in the press at about this time of year, late October to early November. And every year I wait for the story to be published so that every year I can bring it to your attention here on the show and tell you that the story is nonsense, it's incorrect, and you shouldn't be paying any attention to it. And we've had it yet once again, continuing our streak of 30 years, here's the story. And this time, the story appeared in the Wall Street Journal, as reputable a newspaper as exists. The article was talking about mutual funds and advising mutual fund investors to pay attention to the fact that near the end of the year, mutual funds distribute their profits that they've earned during the year. They're called capital gains distributions. And because these mutual funds are going to distribute their capital gains at the end of the year, the Wall Street Journal has recommended, quote, consider waiting to invest in that fund until after the record date. Well, what does all that mean? It's real simple. When a mutual fund buys and sells stocks during the year, it's going to trigger capital gains. If it sells a stock for a profit, it's got to report that profit for tax purposes. But mutual funds themselves don't pay taxes. They pass the tax liability to the shareholder. And that's why you get a 1099 at the end of every year from your mutual funds. So if the mutual fund has made a lot of money during the year and it has bought and sold a lot of stocks during the year, it's going to trigger a lot of capital gains at the end of the year. And you're going to get a 1099 reflecting that. Let's say that the share price of the fund on January 1st was 10 bucks. And at the end of the year, the share price is 15 bucks. Fund had a good year, a 50% gain, pretty exciting. But in the course of the year, it bought and sold so many stocks that of the $5 profit, $3 is realized capital gains. The fund will issue you a 1099 for the $3 profit, and you have to pay taxes on it. Well, that's fair. That's the way the tax system works. What's the big deal? Here's the big deal. It works fine if you owned the fund at the start of the year. But what if you bought the fund on November 1st and then the fund issued the capital gain distribution on November 2nd? You'd be hit with that $3 tax bill, even though you didn't enjoy the profits because you weren't an investor the whole year. And that's why the Wall Street Journal says, don't invest in the fund until after it pays out that distribution, until after the record date, which is the date set for when everybody owns it. And sure enough, there are mutual funds that have 20, 30% distributions or more. Big tax hit. Wait until after the record date to avoid the tax problem, the Wall Street Journal says. That's bad advice for two reasons. Number one, you could very well be investing with your IRA. There are no taxes due with an IRA, so the advice is ridiculous. Number two, if you wait until after the record date, which might not be until late November or December, you could miss out on whatever profits might occur between now and then. It doesn't make any difference. Any tax you pay today 
is a tax you simply won't pay later when you sell your shares. Ignore the advice from the media that is trying to be clever with their tax help for you and talk instead with your own personal financial advisor. You're listening to The Rick Edelman Show. Each week, I like to bring you the latest in the area of exponential technologies, the latest and greatest innovations. There's a new robot called Leo. In a humanoid shape, Leo can walk. Well, that's kind of passe these days. A lot of robots are able to do that. But Leo can not only walk, it can also fly. When it reaches a staircase, it doesn't climb the stairs. It glides over them instead of walking. It's kind of like a human with a jet suit. And how about this one? Coffee. We drink 600 billion cups of coffee per year. There's a huge environmental cost. Coffee demand is causing deforestation to make way for more coffee plants. Also, those plants require pesticides and fertilizer, and then the beans have to be shipped worldwide. So there's a sustainable coffee challenge. In Finland, the Technical Research Center uses cellular agriculture to grow lab-grown coffee. They fill bioreactors with cell cultures, add nutrients to encourage growth. Why would Finland be doing this? Because they're the world's biggest consumer of coffee per capita. Finland folks drink 26 pounds of coffee a year. In the U.S., it's just 9 pounds per person per year. There's an outfit in Seattle working on it, too, and they're already making 1,000 cups a day. I'm Rick Edelman. You're listening to The Truth About Money. number one bestseller, Rescue Your Money, coming up on The Rick Edelman Show. Welcome back to The Rick Edelman Show. We were talking earlier about how uh, the Wall Street Journal gave what I consider to be some uh, bad advice telling mutual fund investors not to invest because of the risk of having to pay taxes on capital gain distributions that mutual funds are going to be distributing. First of all, not all mutual funds are going to be making large capital gain distributions, so you ought to look at your fund to see if that's going to be the case. Second of all, uh, recognize that any taxes you pay on your fund now are simply taxes you're not going to have to pay later, as I mentioned. But the good news is the Wall Street Journal, you know, bless their hearts, they don't usually get it wrong. For example, they did talk about something that you ought to consider if you have made a lot of money with your investments. Do you have mutual funds, exchange-traded funds, stocks, bonds, real estate, Bitcoin, you name it, where you've made a lot of money? Well, particularly a lot of Bitcoin investors with Bitcoin up over 100% this year. What you need to think about is don't sell that asset. Donate it instead. Think about this. If you are charitably inclined, if you are planning to make donations to your favorite charity, the year end is a time for a lot of people to be doing a lot of donations If you have a favorite charity or church, synagogue, mosque, or you are planning to make donations to your alma mater, perhaps, or your favorite nonprofit or social service organization, any 501c3 tax-exempt group, if you donate cash, you will generally be able to get a tax deduction for that donation. But think about this for a second. Let's say that you have profits 
in your stocks or bonds or mutual funds or ETFs or what have you. Instead of giving cash to the charity, give them the shares of your investments. Let me give you an example. Let's say that you bought an investment for $10. It's now worth $15. If you sell it, you're going to pay taxes on the $5 profit. So don't sell it. Instead, give the $15 shares to the charity. The charity will sell the stock. Charities are tax exempt. They don't pay taxes. So when they sell that $15 stock for $15, they keep the $15. They don't pay taxes. And neither do you, because you didn't sell the stock, you gave it to them. You avoid the taxes, but you still get the full tax deduction for the donation, because the donation was worth $15, you get a tax deduction for the $15. Everybody wins. You get the tax deduction, the charity gets the full donation, nobody has to pay any taxes, and this is Congress's way of saying, please donate to charity, and we're going to give you a tax incentive to help you do it economically, effectively. So consider donating highly appreciated assets. Now, a couple of pieces of fine print, because we are talking about the IRS here, there's always fine print. Any highly appreciated assets that you donate to charity, make sure you've owned those assets for more than one year, because that's how you maximize the tax benefit available. If you donate assets you've owned for less than a year, the tax benefit is not nearly as good. I'm not going to bother going into all the details. Talk to your accountant about that. Bottom line is when you donate shares, make sure the shares are more than one year old. Oh, and by the way, if you have assets where you've lost money, don't donate shares of those assets because you don't get to deduct the losses if that's what you do. So here's how you handle it. If you've lost money in an investment, sell it. Just sell the investment. You get to declare the loss, and then for the money that you get, donate the money in cash. So donate shares at a profit, sell shares at a loss. Pretty much that simple. And then make sure the charity sends you a letter acknowledging your gift, the date of the gift, the value of the gift, and that you received no goods or services in exchange for your donation. You need to get that receipt in a timely basis, meaning within several weeks of making the donation so that you can properly claim it on your tax return. For more on all this, talk to your financial and tax advisor. I'm Rick Edelman. You're listening to The Truth About Money. Gene Edelman is taking the week off this week, so let's jump to the telephones instead and talk with Sharon in La Jolla, California. She's standing by on the phones. How you doing, Sharon? I'm doing fine. Thank you, Rick. What can I do for you? Well, I have a friend who's going to become homeless probably in, in around December. Oh, my. Because she cannot afford the little bit of rent she's paying, and she has to move. Mm. So my question is, I would like to subsidize her rent, but I don't know the best way to do that, to give her money or to set up a sump fund or... How much money do you think she needs on a monthly basis? Well, I think she needs about $1,000 a month. Yeah. This is Southern California, so she can afford 1000 and with 1000 2000 she could probably get a place to live. And you can afford to give her 1000 bucks a month? I can, yes. Indefinitely? Yeah. <laughs> she, she's 77, uh, but she's healthy. 
You can give her $1,000 a month for the next 30 years? Uh, probably. Okay, and you're willing to do it? Yes. Okay, good for you. You're a wonderful friend, and I, I'm sure she'll appreciate very much your offer. So the question now becomes, how best do you go about doing it? You could simply give her the money on a monthly basis. Yeah. You have to have confidence that she'll use the money to pay her rent. Yes, yeah, she, she will. I'm sure of that. The alternative is you send the money directly to her landlord. Oh, uh-huh. That, that's a good idea. And that's only half the rent, though, right? Right. You know, if she doesn't pay her half of the rent, she'll lose her apartment anyway. So maybe what you do is have her send you the $1,000 that she's going to pay. You combine it with your 1000 and you send the landlord 2000 This way, you have the confidence that she has, in fact, paid her share of the rent. Uh-huh. Yes, I could do that. What about um, the annual gift that you can give, you know, 15K a year? This falls under that. This is only 12000 a year. So there is no gift tax that either of you will have to pay. It's not a concern. Either any way I do it. Correct. That doesn't matter when or how. All that matters is the amount. Uh-huh. Now, let me take it a step further. There is a nifty way that you might get some tax benefit out of this. That would be nice. <laughs> do you own stocks or bonds or mutual funds? Yes. So what uh, I'm assuming her income is very low. Yes, uh, Social Security and the small pension. So what you might consider doing, this gets a lot more complicated, perhaps more complicated than it's worth, but I'll mention it anyway. You don't give her cash. You give her shares of your mutual funds. Uh-huh. She sells those mutual funds instead of you selling them. I see. She'll incur the tax liability instead of you, but chances are she's in a lower tax bracket than you. So the total tax ends up less. Right. And you could give her more to help cover that tax cost. Or you work with your tax advisor to see if you have any shares that you have lost money on, because you probably have a different cost basis on the different shares you've acquired over time. And by selling certain shares, as opposed to other shares, you might actually be able to take a tax loss, giving you a tax deduction for that loss while you're giving her some money. So it's worth coordinating with your tax advisor to see if that's possible. If it's worth the trouble to do that. Yeah. Now, let me ask you this. You mentioned that she's in her 70s. Yes. How old are you? I'm 82. So what happens to her if something happens to you? Well, I can only do so much. (laughs) Well, you could name her a beneficiary in your will. Yeah. Uh If you're so inclined. Uh That you would put a certain amount of money in a trust giving her a 1000 a month following your death for as long as she lives, upon her death, whatever's left goes to your other heirs. Right. So that's, again, something you might want to think about, talk with your financial advisor or attorney about to see if you want to go to that extent. Because otherwise, she could, knowing you're giving her a 1000 bucks a month, go get an apartment that costs two grand, knowing you're paying for half, she signs a long-term lease, and then you're hit by a bus. And not able to help her any further, and she's got a problem. Uh-huh. So you want to think it through of how much do you want to help her, how long do you want to help her, and do you want to help her no matter what? Correct. Yes. It's, it's a big decision. <laughs> it is. 
It is. I'm so thankful that you are as generous as you are and caring for her. We have all experienced such challenges throughout this pandemic. So many millions of people struggling as your friend is, and it's wonderful that you're there to help her. Let's make sure you're helping her without doing too much harm to yourself. Let's make sure you're able to help her even if something happens to you. Exactly. Um, So talk with your financial and legal and tax advisors about all of this, and also talk with your own family and your heirs, because the money you're giving her is money they're not going to get. Yes, yes, uh, I'm coming to that, too. <laughs> yeah. Make sure everybody's uh, aware of what's going on. Right. Okay. Thank you very much. I'll, I'll explore all those options. That's wonderful, Sharon. I wish you and your friend the very best. That was Sharon in La Jolla, California, here on The Rick Edelman Show. 888-PLAN-RICK. That's 888-752-6742. Or if you prefer, just uh, record your question on your smartphone. Use that audio recorder. Record your question on the phone and then send me your recording to askrick at rickedelman.com. Whatever way is easy for you, we're happy to help. More with the publisher of the newsletter, Inside Personal Finance, coming up on The Rick Edelman Show. Let's head to the phones here on the Rick Edelman Show. Off to Merrick, New York. Paula's with us on the air. How are you doing, Paula? I am fine. Thank you for taking my call. My pleasure. How can I help you? Well, I have a question about the life insurance it's my husband and I have. Mm-hmm. We are both retired. We have a total of 500000 life insurance on my husband's side, and I have 750000 They are both universal life plans from New York Life. Mm -hmm. And we understand that as we get older, of course, those premiums are going to go up. Mm -hmm. And so our question is, we would like to leave a legacy for our son. He is married, financially independent, not even living in New York. Mm -hmm. But we sort of figured if we kept the life insurances, even if the premiums increased, then that would be the legacy we will leave him and my husband and I could freely spend our IRAs. Okay. We have a combined amount of over $1.6 million in our IRAs. Mm-hmm. And we have emergency fund put aside. Our mortgage is like hardly anything and only like 800 and change. Mm-hmm. So our total monthly expenses is uh, around 5000 mm-hmm. And... We're living off of my husband's pension. Okay. You can go ahead with your plan. Um, That's perfectly fine. It's not essential. It's not necessary, but that's got nothing to do with this. Um, You can afford to do it. It's a reasonable plan. Um, My only concern here, the, the weak link in your plan from what you've described, you want to leave your son... $1.2 $1.2 million in insurance proceeds between you and your husband. Yes. So that you and your husband can spend the $1.6 million you have in savings. But you're not doing that. No. You're living off of his pension. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> so 
Sweetheart, you got to start spending some money. You, you got to buy a car. You got to go on a round-the-world cruise. You need a new diamond ring. You got to start living it up. <laughs> or your son is going to end up getting $1.6 million in addition to the $1.2 million life insurance. Well, you know, it's hard for us to spend because, you know, we've been saving all this time. And it's, it's really difficult to, to loosen the reins. <laughs> I know. I know. I, you know, clients get so mad at me when I tell them to buy a first class airplane ticket. <laughs> because, you know, you've lived your life so frugally and responsibly. You've delayed gratification. You've denied yourself luxuries in life to raise your son uh, and to amass this wealth and to now suddenly start to spend it uh, frivolously on meaningless uh, materialism. Mm hmm. Yeah, I get it. I, I really do get it. So I'm kind of teasing you about this. My point, therefore, Paula, if you don't feel that you are, in fact, going to start spending this money, then you don't need to keep the life insurance because your son's going to get the $1.6 That's his legacy. You don't need to keep buying insurance policies that are, frankly, only enriching the insurance company. So I, I think you should have a conversation with your son about this because, quite frankly, you could say to him, we own these policies. They're worth between the two of them, $1.2, million, $1.3 You're the beneficiary. So why don't you pay for the premiums instead of us? That's a pretty good investment for him, perhaps. So get him involved in that conversation. And two other points I want you to consider. Number one, as I tell you to spend the money, you truly have to spend it. You can't merely shift it. In other words, I remember having a conversation with a client about this many, many years ago, and, and he was a wealthy individual, and he was struggling with spending his money, like you've described, and I told him to start spending it, and he said, well, I can withdraw it from the stock market, but you know, I'll just you know, put it in my stamp collection. And I said, that doesn't count. Unless you take a rare stamp and mail it, it's still an asset. So moving money from stocks to bonds, or say you buy a beach house for a million dollars, you haven't spent the money, the beach house is still worth a million bucks, and that's an inheritable asset. So you literally have to spend it. You've got to go on vacations. You've got to go to Broadway. You've got to book an airline ticket. You've got to buy something that is a depreciating or wasting asset. That's how you literally spend it. You can't just shift it around by doing other stuff. You can buy a car because cars fall in value, but you can't buy houses because they generally don't fall in value uh, or not as much as cars do. So that's my point. The second point is this. If it bothers you to frivolously throw away your hard-earned money of a lifetime and you're struggling to upgrade your TV because your current TV is perfectly fine, thank you very much. I get that. Yes, it is. <laughs> Consider philanthropy. Yes. There are charities, nonprofits, church that could certainly use your funds and would be very happy to work with you on a planned giving strategy where you can have a big impact in your local community or even on a national scale uh, of addressing the uh, issues that are very near and dear to your heart. So consider philanthropy as an alternative for this money. Okay. Okay. Um yeah, because in fact, we do give away quite a lot to our church and to like food banks, et cetera, et cetera. But I guess there is always more that that can be done where charity is concerned. Yeah. So you're in great situation. 
congratulations for all you've done. Think it through. I think at the end of the day, you can conclude that you really don't need these insurance policies in order to provide a legacy for your son. Okay. Thank you very much, Rick. I appreciate it. You're welcome, Paula. That was Paula in Merrick, New York, here on The Rick Edelman Show. She called 888-PLAN-RICK. You can, too. Or visit online at ricestellman.com. You're listening to The Rick Edelman Show. You know there are a lot of folks, uh, maybe you, who've got questions, but you don't have the opportunity to talk to me for a conversation that will air. So you're not out of luck. All you have to do is record your question on your smartphone. And then send me that recording to askrick at rickedelman.com. And in fact, you can do this anywhere, anytime. When I say anywhere, I really mean it, uh, as evidenced by Christian. He sent a uh, question in, and he's living in Portugal. So it's really exciting that this uh, radio show and podcast is truly heard all around the world. Here's Christian's question. Hi, Rick. This is Christian. I am an American Italian citizen residing abroad in Portugal, Europe, and I would like to know if I am allowed to open an account in the States, even if I don't have a physical address in the States. Thank you very much, Rick, and thank you for all the work you've done along these years. I've been a great fan of yours and great listener. Thank you, and good luck for your next step. Bye-bye. That was Christian in Portugal, and uh, thank you very much for the kind comments, uh, Christian. Uh, Unfortunately, no. Uh, In order for you to be able to open an investment account in the United States with a brokerage firm or with a financial advisor, you need to have a social security number, which you do have because you're an American citizen, but you also need a physical address. Uh, you can have a P.O. box. Uh, we often send our clients mail to a P.O. box, but we have to have on file a physical address. It can't merely be a P.O. box. If you're in the military, your APO address counts, so that works. But I don't get the sense, Christian, from your call that you're in the military. So you need to come up with an American address. Without a U.S. address, I'm afraid that you are not able to establish a U.S. investment account. So, my friend, you're going to have to move back to take advantage of the investment opportunities available here in the United States. That was Christian in Portugal sending his question via askrick at rickedelman.com. As always, thanks for joining us on the program today. A reminder that our full podcast has more topics and stories, including the latest and what many people are doing to combat inflation and, of course, more of your phone calls. Listen to this week's podcast at rickedelman.com. And remember to honor our men and women who have given so much in service on Veterans Day this Thursday. See you next week. Get the truth about money every weekend on The Rick Edelman Show.